Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today we're going to be talking to Peter S. Goodman. It's always official when you have the middle initial in there. Yeah, that's it? important to get in there. Yeah. Next book I'm doing Crystal M. Ball, just to add a little that, bit of It does. Respect. It really adds, like, people are like, damn, there's a middle initial. There's no real like, rest I gotta listen Crystal now. Ball, though. You just kind of kind of lean into it. No, but you know what? The middle initial might throw people off to the fact that your name is Crystal Ball. Think so? You know what I mean? Yeah, because the middle initial is just like, it's powerful. Yeah. Let me tell you, it's powerful. Mine is messed up, though, because it's Kyle E. Kalinske. My middle name is Edward. Mm -hmm. And when you spell it out, it's Keck. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't have the same sort of, like, nobility that every other middle initial has. I'm KMB. Um, yeah, I actually engaged in a lot of strategies in life to sort of make people not really notice my name is Crystal Ball. Like when I'm talking to, you know, customer service reps or whatever, I'll always lead with the last name and spell it and then do the first name. So, you know, they don't necessarily put it all together because it is sort of unbelievable. But some people don't even notice it, even if you say Crystal Ball. That is true. And then other people immediately are like, Crystal Ball? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's funny because you could get a sense of like who's more present. My, uh, one of my teachers growing up that I had multiple years in elementary school, um, who I was relatively close with. This is when I was in like kindergarten, first, second grade. I was in a play and her sister came and she was looking at like the, you know, little program they give you for the play. And she saw my name and she was like, Crystal Ball, that's a funny name to my teacher. And my teacher was like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. She never noticed. Never noticed. <laughs> it just never occurred to her. Yeah. Anyway, we digress. Peter Goodman is the author of this book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. He's also global economics correspondent at the New York Times. Is and it Davos or Davos? Davos. Is it for sure? Yes. This is one of those things where, like, I'll go back and forth a thousand times. It's Davos. Okay, I'm going to say Davos okay. just to get under your what, skin. Whatever you want. <laughs> whatever you want. That's fine. Anyway, uh, it's an excellent book. Exposes many of the crimes of people like Jeff Bezos, of um, Blackstone, the way that they have rigged the system, the way that this is so far from a free and open and fair market that it's just absolutely absurd, um, including some of the um, just theft that they committed during the pandemic mm. and what that all looked like. So very, very excited to talk to him. Yeah, I'm going to guess the overarching theme is billionaires. Not good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, you pretty much got it. Which you is something there. I'm inclined to agree with. Mm -hmm. um, but before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about Biden gave this um, pretty big uh, press conference. He hasn't really spoken to the media almost at all since he's been president. So he did this really big, long press conference. He talked for a long like time. like the longest in modern history or yeah, something they, like that. They had to pump him up with so much Adderall before he went on <laughs> out there that he was just like, come on, hit me. I'm good to go. <laughs> um, but there's there's a million moments we could talk about. I know on yeah. your show, um, I know on your show that you and Sagar talked about a bunch of different moments. Mm -hmm. Two stuck out in particular to me. Uh, so why don't we go ahead and throw it to the first video, then we'll react. I did not anticipate that there'd be such a stalwart effort to make sure that the most important thing was that President Biden didn't get anything done. Think about this. What are Republicans for? What are they for? Name me one thing they're for. And so the problem here is that I think what's happens, what I have to do and the, and the change in, in tactic, if you will, I have to make clear to the American people what we are for. We've passed a lot. We've passed a lot of things that people don't even understand what's all that's in it, understandably. 
Yeah, and whose fault is that? Right. Yeah. I mean, the idea that he didn't learn, he thought that the Republicans were going to work with him this time. Okay, so let me float to you, because I, you know, he said that that was big online, people were talking about it, and everybody is sort of taking him at his word that, like, really, you're that naive, like, you're that silly, that's, like, how dumb well, are you? But I have a theory that, okay. and I don't know if I buy this, but I'm just floating it. Okay. No, it, he knew they were going to act like that, but it's sort of, instead of actually passing, like, Bernie Sanders-esque stuff or decent stuff, or even just the things that were in Build Back Better, which isn't full Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. stuff, it's just sort of standard decent stuff, he would rather have them obstructing as the excuse to get a lot less done because getting the less stuff done is more in alignment with his philosophy for his entire career because he's also a corporate Democrat. I mean, he's no Joe Manchin, he's no Kirsten Sinema, they're worse, but... You know, he didn't like my theory was even in the Build Back Better negotiations, he sort of wanted Mansion and Cinema to slim it down. He didn't want to get nothing through, but he wanted them to slim it down. That is true. But I don't know that he's operating on that kind of level of strategery. And look, he, the man has stood for a lot of bad things throughout his many decades of his career. Crime and he bill, has this just like Patriot Act, yeah, Iraq War, basically <laughs> wrong side right. of almost every significant issue, right? Um, but he has consistently held on to this almost like religious faith in the ability of like sensible bipartisanship to come up with real solutions. Like this is to the extent that he has a core ideology instead of just like a basket of slogans and whatever the donors want him to do. This is actually core to ideology. And so remember when he was running in the primary and then in the general election, People would be like, there's no way these people are going to work with you. Like, what is your actual plan to get things done? And I looked up some of the comments that he made. You probably remember him, too. Remember he was him, yeah. like, mm -hmm. just watch me. It'll he be said, like a spell is broken. He said, like he said they're going to have an epiphany. epiphany when that, Trump's was the, gone. that was the language. Once Trump's gone, it's already you can already see it happening. They're going to have an epiphany. You just watch. They're going to come to the table. And this wasn't just like once or twice. This was consistently brought up by him. So... I really think that he is out of it and disconnected from modern Washington enough to have thought that these people who he considers to be his friends and he's very relationship driven. He doesn't have an ideology. He has like, you know, a basket of friends that he thinks he can like sweet talk into doing things for him that he really thought that was ultimately going to come for through for him. I mean, the only reason they even got the infrastructure thing done is because Wall Street and the Chamber of Commerce were ultimately pushing for, for it. But imagine spending eight years in the Obama administration and still holding on to this notion that the Republicans have any interest in doing anything good for you or good for the American people. Well, that's why the conspiracy is not an impossibility. I mean, I tend to agree with you, but uh, that, you know, he actually does sort of hold on to this naive view. Yeah. But at the same time, if you were Obama's VP, you saw that Mitch McConnell literally broke the filibuster record. I mean, we're talking about a Republican Party under the Obama administration that became so extreme, they started saying no to their own policy ideas. Because Obama always, I mean, the healthcare debate is the best example of this. The real left position is single payer. The compromise position is public option. And then the right wing reform is what's called an individual mandate system, which is keeping the for-profit health insurance companies in control. Yeah. And you just mandate people have to go buy <laughs> from those companies. Yeah. That was an idea that came from the Heritage Foundation. That's a right wing think tank. And Chuck implemented Rassley, by Mitt Romney. Chuck Grassley, <laughs> Newt Gingrich, Mitt Romney. These yeah. are all people that supported that. But when Obama finally, and this with a supermajority. 
He was like, well, fine, we'll do your idea. He got not a single Republican vote. So you're telling me Joe Biden watched all this unfold and his genuine thought was, the only reason is because it's Obama who's proposing it. They just don't like Obama. That uh, I, I think that is how he thinks about it. That's the dumbest remember, thing I've ever seen. Such a stupid analysis. A hundred percent. It's the dumbest analysis you could possibly have filled with hubris. Right. That mm. you think you're somehow I could have done it better. I mean, and this right. is where there were a few moments in the presser that were quite Trumpian. This is a Trumpian type of thinking of like, oh, well, once I get in there, I'm going to be able to cut the deals that other people weren't able to do because of the specialness of my talent and my relationships, et cetera. But, you know, if you're him, you were in the Senate for 40 years. Effectively, you were uh, vice president for eight years. So the the length, the bulk of your tenure was working with these people in the Senate who, again, you considered to be your colleagues and your friends. And you kind of had a clash of cultures between Barack Obama's style of governance and Joe Biden's style of governance, Obama being very removed, being very intellectual, sort of disdaining the actual arm twisting and relationship building of politics, Biden being that old school, backslapping, relationship driven person who was actually derided um, as sort of the, you know, the fool or the anti-intellectual within the, the Obama White House. So I do think that's what Biden told himself is, oh, well, Barack Obama was just doing it wrong. Um, once I get in there and I have these relationships and they've seen the error of their ways with Trump gone, it's going to be a new day. I don't think he's lying when he says he was genuinely surprised that the Republicans didn't like roll out the red carpet for him. Yeah. Um, so there's one part there where he makes a good point, but it's amazing that like he's the one having the epiphany on this at this late date. Yeah. He's like, well, what are the Republicans for? That's a good point. Yeah, Joe. <laughs> what have they been for for the past five, six, seven decades? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you exactly what they're for. They're in favor of more tax cuts for the wealthy, mm -hmm. you know, uh, subsidizing big corporations and bailing them out, including Wall Street. And they're for endless culture war stuff where they can virtue signal to evangelical Christians and to like, you know, anti-woke, the anti-woke crowd now. Yeah, to like boomers on Facebook or that, whatever. Like that's literally all. And now also a virtue signal to anti-vax folks. That's it. That's all. That's all they've got. And so for you to bring that up now, like, turns out these guys aren't for anything. Yeah. And if you if you had paid attention and acted objectively for a split second over the past however many decades since you've been in Washington, D.C., you would have realized that. But still, OK, so that point is fair from him. But that still misses the broader point here because, yeah, I got it. The, the obstructionists are going to obstruct. Where the why aren't you talking about mansion and cinema? Why right. aren't you calling them out directly? Why aren't you threatening? I mean, so you brought up, well, Obama was like the intellectual. Uh, Biden's strain of thought was like, well, the anti-intellectual, but the old school backslapping politician. There's a third option. The third option is called the enforcer. That's LBJ. That's FDR. That's the guy who twists arms and plays the role of the mafia boss in order to get his way. That's the only way in the modern political era you were ever going to get anything done, especially with the stranglehold that corporate money and billionaire money has on Washington, D.C. Well, you have to actually be committed to the ideology, committed to what you want to do, and then you have to, you know, uh, break a couple eggs to make a few yeah. omelets in order to get it done. And he didn't call out Mansion or Cinema directly in any way, shape, yeah. or form. And that's why they're going to keep getting away with everything. If you had ads running, if you said, you know what, we're running, the, let me show you the new ad that we're running against uh, Kirsten Cinema in Arizona. And let me show you the new one we're running against Mansion in West Virginia. And it, it talks about their corruption. It shows how much money they took. It shows how they flipped their positions and all that stuff. You could force them to the right position, especially, I'm sorry, but you know where this rant is going. But the yeah. bottom line is, 
yeah, I got it. Yeah, Republicans, they're, they're the problem. Of course they're the problem. I expect them to be the problem, the elected Republicans in Washington, D.C. But the people in your party are the only ones that are actually obstructing the agenda. Them and your complete weakness in order to try to make some exceptions to the filibuster or go back to the original talking filibuster, sign some fucking executive orders. So I think that there is a good case to make that Joe Manchin is the only Democrat who effectively can get uh, elected statewide in West Virginia. And so that is used a lot of times as a shield to say, well, you know, would you rather have a Republican in West Virginia? At least Joe Manchin's going to vote with you some of the time. But what Biden is proposing now is, all right, let's break Build Back Better into chunks and let's bring it up individually. Well, there's two ways you can do that. One is to pick the extraordinarily uh, inadequate milk toast pieces of Build Back Better that Mansion and Cinema might already support. I don't even know what those things are at this point, but it's nothing too exciting. And put, you know, make it uncomfortable for Republicans that they're not on board with those things. Or you could pick things where you're going to have divides in the Democratic Party, probably not just with Mansion and Cinema, but some of the other corporatist Democrats, and make it uncomfortable for them, make them face tough votes so they can't hide behind, oh, it's a big bill and there's too much spending and inflation and so I'm the responsible one and I'm doing what's right for my constituents. No, so you actually have to put Joe Manchin on blast on being on the wrong side of an issue that's 80-20 in West Virginia, something like paid sick leave, something like prescription drug reform, though something like you know adding hearing aids to, uh, to Medicare. Things that are exceptionally popular in West Virginia where there is no way for him to get around that, that's the sort of thing that could actually make him and Kirsten Cinema uncomfortable. But my expectation, if they do decide to go in the direction of, okay, we're going to break back, break up, build back better and just try to pass these individual pieces, is they are only going to put bring things to the floor that every Democrat is already on board with. In which case you're going to get effectively next to nothing, and yeah, you've just outsourced your agenda to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. What they could do, and nobody even talks about this. We have the conversation about the filibuster. Okay, good. We talk about that all day long. There's a million different ways you can get around the filibuster, eliminate the filibuster, weaken the filibuster, or go back to the original filibuster. But there's also just the idea of you can give yourself more cracks at reconciliation. Mm -hmm. The way it works right now, you get what two, three. Shots at reconciliation. It's one of the two. One of the, those. Well, two remember options. the parliamentarian ruled that they could actually do more reconciliations than they had originally thought. That was something Chuck Schumer sort of investigated. So you could have multiple reconciliation bills with a couple of. Let's say you put paid sick leave and you know prescription drug pricing reform well, together you, and just try to do that. If you give yourself ten cracks at reconciliation, you could put individual issues through reconciliation, mm -hmm. and then you put pressure on them, and you can make the issues. Overwhelming. Like, for example, in the middle of a two-year raging pandemic, paid sick leave? Okay, you want to vote against paid sick leave? Fine. But all we need is 51 votes. Here's the bill on just paid sick leave. We're doing it through reconciliation. I dare you. I dare you. Go ahead. Right. And if you do the wrong thing, oh, I'm going to end your political career, and then you're not even going to be able to get a job afterwards. Okay? That's what you do. Child tax credit. Try to do that through reconciliation. Give yourself more cracks of reconciliation. Try to do it through that. You only need 51 votes, and you dare them. Okay? Mm -hmm. But he doesn't have this in him, and we know he doesn't have it in him. Yeah. Because the other thing is... Again, he could just sign some executive orders right now that would make his approval rating bump up 5, 10 points, and he refuses to do it. Let's, let's go to the next video, because this uh, is also crazy. Why are you trying so hard in your first year to pull the country so far to the left? Well, I'm not. I don't know what you consider to be too far to the left, if, in fact, we're talking about 
making sure that we had the money for COVID, making sure we had the money to put together the bipartisan infrastructure, making sure we were able to provide for those things that, in fact, would significantly reduce the burden on working class people, but make them they have to continue to work hard. I don't know how that is pointed to the left. If you may recall, I, uh, you guys have been trying to convince me that uh, I am uh, um, Bernie Sanders. I'm not. I like him, but I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm not a socialist. I'm a mainstream Democrat, and I have been. And mainstream Democrats have overwhelmed me. If you notice, the 48 of the 50 Republic uh, Democrats supported me in the Senate on virtually everything I've asked. I'm not Bernie Sanders. Yeah, that's the problem. Have you looked at his approval rating and have you looked at your approval rating? Yours is at 33%. He's still the most liked Democrat in the country and in some polls still the most liked senator in the country because people know that Bernie Sanders, agree or disagree with him, is fighting for them. He's fighting for working people. This is what drives me crazy. This conventional wisdom, manufacturing consent that somehow permeates all of the elites in Washington, D.C., where you get questions from Ducey Dickhead, why are you pulling the country too far to the left? Then you get Joe Scarborough on MSNBC asking the same goddamn question today. Why are you pulling the country too far to the left? These are majoritarian positions. If you looked at the polls for Build Back Better, almost every single issue was polling well over 50%. Some were over like 70%. And what does he do? He follows them right down that path. I'm not Bernie Sanders. I swear I'm not popular. You guys can hate, keep hating me out there in the country. Who are you talking to, Joe? Who are you talking to? You're talking to a bunch of elite media people who are not looking out for your best interest, and they're not objectively describing the situation. If you were smart, you would run into Bernie Sanders' arms and, and start doing his policy agenda by any means necessary, whether through executive orders or through doing more cracks of reconciliation or getting rid of the filibuster or whatever it is. Not to mention how you really undercut your own message when you throw Bernie Sanders under the bus and demonize him as an extreme. When people know Bernie is out there selling your agenda, Bernie helped to craft the you know original Build Back Better and put the provisions in that are exceptionally popular across the country. So you're really sort of undercutting your own message and your own agenda there. But I, it, this whole, the problem with Biden's presidency is that he went too far left is driving me absolutely bonkers. And he the only it. time, the only time he did anything that was remotely left was at the very beginning of the administration when they sent out one round of checks. And guess what? Your approval rating was 55% then. 57 was now the highest. It's, it was then 57. It's totally reversed. You were 12 points of above water. Now you're 12 points underwater. So back when you were doing some more kind of left things, people liked you a whole lot more. The problem is not that Joe Biden has moved too far to the left. The problem is Joe Biden hasn't done anything. That's right. That's I mean, exactly right. totally failed strategy, totally failed vision, totally failed tactics on every single level. So what are the top three issues that Americans say they care about? Health care, the economy, and climate change. What are you doing on any of those three things? Throw the left-right spectrum out Think about what people actually support and what they want and what they would make a difference in their lives. And that's why he sort of by, yeah, throwing Bernie under the bus, he basically accepts their framing of, oh, those things Bernie Sanders wants. Those things are extreme. But what I Joe Biden want, those are mainstream things. Well, guess what? Bernie's out there advocating for your agenda. So what message do you think that that ultimately sends? Uh 
Lowering prescription drug prices, that polls at 73%. Lowering the Medicare age, that polls at 59%. Universal pre-K polls at 59%. Tuition-free community college polls at 58%. Extending uh, child tax benefits polls plus nine. It's nine points over water. Raising taxes on wealthy business owners, 68%. Increasing the capital gains tax, 66%. Raising income taxes on those who make more than $400,000 a year, 64%. Increasing the corporate tax rate, 62%. Every single thing I just laid out for you was part of the original Build Back Better plan. Mm -hmm. And what did Joe Biden do? Laid down in a chalk outline of himself, gave a pen and paper to Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin and said, you just write whatever you want and then we'll try to pass that. And now he turns around and has clearly internalized the media's criticism of him that like, the problem isn't that you didn't do anything. The problem is that you went too far left and you did too much. Yeah. And this is what drives me crazy. And this is how powerful the media is because yes, this is what manufacturing consent is. They are now, they are so aggressive with this narrative that the problem is that Joe Biden was too far left that even your average Drew, who doesn't follow politics closely, is like, I don't know, maybe that was the maybe problem. That maybe, maybe that was Well, and they have two narratives that don't make sense together that were both evident in this press conference. Actually, we played a little bit of both of those moments. One is, you're not getting anything done. What's going on? Your agenda is hamstrung. And the other is, you did way too much and you went way too far left. Those two things do not compute, but they don't seem to really notice that. And the other thing, why are people like Joe Scarborough, David Brooks, Chris Matthews, Thomas Friedman, Tom Friedman, all these people, Jen Rubin, why are they all coming out in this united voice to say the problem is Bernie Sanders and the left? Well, it's because the failures of the Biden administration are a direct repudiation of them and their ideology. We didn't want Joe Biden. They wanted Joe Biden. We didn't want neoliberalism and all their like confusing means testing and income phase outs and block grants and all this stuff that makes it hard to rally the public behind an agenda because they don't even understand who's going to benefit. You are the people who want that. This Biden administration is late stage neoliberalism. That is exactly what it is. That's exactly what all of these legacy media pundits and journalists fought for and pushed for and secured. And the fact that it is an utter and complete disaster now. No, no, no. That's at your feet. That is at your feet. We tried to warn you <laughs> that this was not going to go well. And so you don't even try it, turning it back around on us and pretending like, oh, the problem is the left again. And they went too far. He hasn't even done anything. When he did do a few things at the beginning, he was popular. That's right. Uh, control room, cut to my tight shot for a second. I have a direct message for these goons in the media. This is for David Brooks. This is for Thomas Friedman. This is for Joe Scarborough. This is for uh, the Ducey, who's so irrelevant. I don't even know his name. I just know he's <laughs> the son of the guy who's an idiot on Fox <laughs> News. This is for you. This is for everybody who's been pushing this narrative. Own it. This is your governing philosophy in action. You wanted the centrists, which really are just corporatists and status quo defenders and milquetoast neoliberals who like to tweak around the edges. This is what you wanted. This is what you called for. This is what you're getting. And you know what? The president's approval rating is 33%. That's not my guy. My guy was Bernie Sanders. He's the only one who still has an above water approval rating in the Democratic Party right now. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what Crystal wanted. This is what you guys wanted. So now you got it, and now you're going to own it. Take the L. 
Hold the L. And I don't want to hear anything, any more articles about why you got to blame the left, why you got to blame Bernie Sanders and all that stuff. Every single Democrat who ran on Medicare for all in 2018 won. Won. Now, did any of you guys who are so objective and above the fray, did any of you guys look at that and go, well, hold on now. Well, this would indicate maybe we should be running on Medicare for all. No, you didn't. In fact, you ran away from Medicare for all at 1,000 miles an hour. So the reality is you're not objective. You're not empirical. You're weasels, and you always punch left and blame the left, no matter when, no matter how much, it's your own failing. So I'm here to tell you, enough's enough. Own it. 33% approval rating. It's all yours. And the sad thing is that they're not negatively. I mean, they're protected from the whims of the economy. You fail up in mainstream they're media. They're protected from, you know, the price hikes. That's not going to bother them and their wallets. Yeah, they'll they'll continue to fail up. They get prominent positioning for their terrible, like, Biden should run for, with Liz Cheney takes, or maybe Hillary Clinton's the answer next time around takes. And the other thing is, guess who benefited more than anyone and profited more than anyone off of Donald Trump in the White House? These very same people. I mean, he rescued their outlets as much as he liked to go after the media. The fact of the matter is he propped up CNN. He propped up MSNBC. He propped up all of these um, mainstream outlets, got so many new subscribers, so much new interest. And with him gone, their numbers have fallen off a cliff. So the sad thing is Democrats are doing everything they can to pave the pathway back to Donald Trump in the White House. That's right. And these these people who pretend to be so upset about it, they're going to be the ones who actually benefit and profit and get more rich and more book deals and more famous off of his next horrific, damaging, dangerous term. In mainstream media, they always fail up. It happened with the Iraq war. It happened with every war that they pushed for. It happened with all the conspiracy theories that they pushed that were dead wrong. Russiagate, for example. Everybody who was dead wrong every step of the way got promoted. Everybody who was right got axed and was roadkill. Jesse Ventura was against the war. He never had his show. Phil Donahue was against mm -hmm. the war. He was axed. Now we're seeing the same Chris thing. Hedges. The same people. That's when he Chris got Hedges. That's right. The, the same people time. who are wrong about all of this stuff are the most prominent voices, and it's what the American people have to hear every day in mainstream media, and they should be sick of it, and I'm certainly sick of it. Well, we've got a great example of that. Um, okay, so you are going to be shocked to learn, Kyle, that this story that we have been spun, that there's some mysterious Russian brainwave weapon that is afflicting the men and women serving overseas in the State Department, Turns out that is totally and completely false. Who could have seen it coming? Everybody they're, on the left. Yeah, every, I mean, <laughs> Literally everybody. This thing was always ridiculous. We got into it on Breaking Points. Glenn actually had a great piece on um, just how absurd the whole Havana Syndrome story was from the beginning. The original story was that they heard some kind of like a buzzing sound. And then you had all these people who were afflicted with this mysterious condition. And it was all standard symptoms, too. It was like, I had a headache. It was, <laughs> or I was nauseous. I mean, listen, I don't want to understand. I'm sure it's a I stressful situation. You might not whatever. want to. I want to. Whatever. I'm not going to tell people what they experienced and that that was good, bad for that. Whatever. Anyway, they analyzed the sound. And it turns out it's crickets. It's literal crickets. That are making the sound. Now, any normal person looking at that would go, okay, so this is probably like not a Russian brainwave 
uh, or Cuban weapon, or Cuban brainwave. Yeah, but Russia was the primary suspect. Oh, they were. I, I heard Russia it was, was in prim- Cuba, so I thought it they was were in Cuba, Cuba, but Russia was the primary gotcha. suspect. So anyone looking at that would be like, all right, well, that kind of debunks, debunks the whole like Russian brainwave thing. But no, the media held on to this thing. The CIA spun them on this thing for years. It was reported. It was considered such a like foregone conclusion and a fact that Congress passed relief funds for people who suffered from Havana syndrome. What was the vote? Tell everybody the vote. I, I don't have it in front it was of me, but it was like everybody. Not a single one voted against it. Oh my God. Everybody voted for it. Yeah. Everybody voted for it. Everybody voted for it. And think about that. Think about that and contrast it to the fact that you've got John Stewart out there trying to call attention to people who are actually suffering from real ailments, including cancer, from these toxic burn pits they were exposed to when they were serving our nation in Iraq and Afghanistan. Have they gotten care and money and relief voted through from Congress for their real wounds? No, of course Restitution not. for the families of drone strike victims. That's something that many of them have wanted and they can't, that, they can't get it. The family that was murdered um, by our government in Afghanistan so that Biden could look like a tough guy on his, on his way out of the country and pretend that he got an ISIS-K militant, they have yet to receive a penny. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to be relocated to mm-hmm. the U.S. They have not been relocated to the U.S. So even on top of the clear war crime with no accountability, we're still screwing over this poor, grieving Afghan family. So I just want to read you a little bit of the piece. And this is directly from one of the CIA's favorite like mouthpieces, Ken Delanian at NBC News. CIA says Havana syndrome, not result of sustained campaign by hostile power. In about two dozen cases, however, the agency can't rule out foreign involvement, including many of the cases that originated at the U.S. Embassy in Havana beginning in 2016. In a new intelligence assessment, the CIA has ruled out that the mysterious symptoms known as Havana syndrome are the result of a sustained global campaign by a hostile power aimed at hundreds of U.S. diplomats and spies. Six people briefed on the matter told NBC News. So this thing has gotten so ridiculous that even the CIA can no longer sustain yeah, the lie. But okay, but that's the thing is why why are they acknowledging it? Because they did like when they lied about us going into Iraq, I mean it took what how many years were we into the war? Seven before they were like, Yeah, yeah, okay, it's kinda of bullshit. You know what I mean? And sometimes they hang on to the lies forever. They're still trying to pretend like Lee Harvey Oswald is the only one who killed JFK and that's all there is to it, case closed. So why why would they admit? I don't understand why they admit. I don't it. know why now. I mean, I will say there was a lot of heightened uh, rush hysteria under Trump um, where, you know, it was Putin was behind everything and he was the he was like pulling the puppet strings of everything that was happening in global affairs. And he had something on Trump and he's targeting our, you know, State Department workers, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know if it's now that Trump's gone. It's like, yeah, we can kind of. Yeah, give I mean, up that, the game on this one. That narr- narrative was always so bogus because, and you saw it too, with they would claim like, "Oh, Trump is Vladimir Putin's puppet." At the same time, Trump was arming neo-Nazi rebel groups in Ukraine who were fighting <laughs> Russia. And I remember looking at that, going, "What? Like this? That makes no sense." He's actually being hawkish and he's raising tensions with mm-hmm. Russia by doing stuff like that. The yeah. NATO buildup on Russia's border, which is exactly what was happening right. under the Trump administration. The rejection of the pipeline. Well, that was some, the, I didn't even agree with that. I thought they, because it's none of our business. Like, right. What the fuck do we have to do with the pipeline between Germany and Russia? They let them make the decision. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that was one of the things that people said about one of Biden's other answers in the presser, where he was sort of like, well, if Russia invades a little bit, eh, he'll talk it over. Yeah, but he's There's right like, about that shit. I, it was like, but he's right. He's just, 
Just like Trump would have been right if it he was said very, it. It was a very Trumpian moment. But you can imagine if Trump had said the same thing. I mean, the media is still freaked out about it under Biden. But with Trump, yeah, it would Trump have been an extra the level. Thing. They would they have been, like, been you're like, obviously Putin's puppet. Filing yeah. articles of impeachment by right. next yeah. week, you know. And oh, you just invited Russia to invade a sovereign right. nation. Yeah. And how could you? And yeah. what does he have on you? And we're going to find the P tape. It would have been totally like bananas. Totally. Kind of reaction yeah. if Trump had said the same thing. Yeah. But I, 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 I really respect that answer from Biden. It's true because <laughs> there's so much escalation. And don't get me wrong. I think the deep state is more behind it than Biden himself. I think like, you know, it's the Pentagon and the CIA and all these for NATO, all these forces that are, it's almost like too much is going on. Too many people are involved and we're just pushing towards that. But you want voices to be like, how about we don't do this and we talk a little bit and see what's up? Yeah. You know, I, not everybody's Hitler. Like, that's the thing. I get it. If Vladimir Putin is Hitler, then you don't want to be Neville Chamberlain and like let him take everything. You know what I'm saying? Right. But not everybody's fucking Hitler. In fact, very few people are fucking Hitler. There's very few Hitlers out there. Yeah. You know well, saying? I mean, there's just so much to get into with Ukraine. I defended him on the comments, too. I mean, listen, it's Joe Biden. He said first he says the thing he's supposed to say in the briefing book of like, we're going to be strong. We're going to be tough. There are going to be real consequences, et cetera. And then he can't help but just sort of like let his brain water, wander to how he actually thinks about it. Yeah. Be like, well, you know, it's just, if they incurred in the, if they there's a little incursion, we may have to talk that over and we'll see what we think about that. Like, I ultimately, I would much rather that messy, muddled uh, comment from Biden than what I was afraid of, which, which is was a overly much hawkish, more hawkish. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm more afraid of, too. And that's what the media would reward. If right. he had done and the, be like, wrong to they will that. pay and we will spare no one, whatever. When did they fuck off Trump the most? When, when he, he was bombing Syria. Was bombing Syria. This is yeah. the moment he became president. And yeah. Brian Williams, the beauty of our missiles taking off. Oh, God. Yes, I have uh, yes. So bad. I remember watching that, like. So anyway, uh, I would take I would take Biden's, like, yeah, you could do a little incursion, I guess. We'll talk it over and see how it goes over the ratcheting up of tensions, the beating of the war drums that we come that the media loves to yeah. ultimately reward. Yeah, I, I, there's so much more I could say about this issue, but we're yeah, not going to get into a the deep one. We Soviet Union and post-Soviet on. Union and you know all that stuff. That's mm -hmm. too much there. NATO but expansion. Anyway, the the fact that we have uh, just one more thing, but put the oh, book down. Okay, I thought you were referencing this. No, no, we're no. About I was going to say, yeah, the fact that all Congress people voted in favor of giving these people money. It's just it. You're all disgusting failures. You're all total idiots. There was never any evidence of this stuff. There was a bunch of fear-mongering pieces written in the media. And look, credit to the to the media now for at least saying the right thing, but there was never any evidence of it, and they all wrote articles about how this thing was real. And that tells you, what does that tell you? It tells you that the media is in bed with the intelligence agency, mm -hmm. which is a problem. You're not supposed to be a stenographer to these known liars. Mike Pompeo said it. When I was the head of the CIA, we lied, we cheated, we stole. That's what we did. And then you have the idiots in mainstream media are like, yes, sir, tell me what to write next. Yeah. You should be fact-checking these people. You should be, uh, you know, aggressively trying to figure out the truth. You don't take them at their word. But that's not how a career is made. That's not how a career Washington is made. That's right. Like the media. There's a reason Kendallanian gets all these scoops and headlines. It's because he just, you know, uncritically reports whatever right. the CIA tells him the public line is today. And by the way, they do give themselves a little bit of an out here from just totally admitting like, well, we got that we kind of made all that up, which is that they haven't ruled out that it could have been for at least a few dozen of the cases. Maybe it still was the Russian brainwaves. Still possible. Still looking into that one. <laughs> oh, so, I hate these <laughs> people amazing. so much. I hate them so much. Totally amazing. All right. Now you're ready to point yes. to this book. Mm -hmm. Okay. Davos Man, How Billionaires Devoured the World. Excellent book. Excellent guest. 
global economics correspondent for the New York Times after we just spent a lot of time trashing the mainstream media. But I am telling you, this book is wonderfully reported and a joy to read. Let's get right to it. Peter Goodman, welcome. Great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so let me start with the most basic question, which is, what is Davos? And uh, sort of what story did they tell about themselves at the World Economic Forum? And what is the reality of the World Economic Forum? Yeah, you bet. That's an important question. So first of all, Davos man uh, refers, I mean, to the people who go to the World Economic Forum in Davos. It's, it's shorthand for the billionaire class. Davos is this gathering that started in the 70s that was supposed to be this sort of idealistic, up on the mountaintop, solve the problems of the world, uh, launched by a guy named Klaus Schwab, this German economist. But it's become over the years you know, the ultimate gathering place for the glittering billionaire class. They're heads of state. Uh, there's always a couple of uh, Hollywood celebrities wandering around. I one year met Peter Gabriel, who told me about how he was making music with chimpanzees. Uh, there's always stuff like that happening. There's social entrepreneurs. And then there are a lot of, you know, very idealistic uh, people from NGOs and activist organizations. But the real oxygen of the place takes place outside of the official auspices. Like you, you can wander around this Congress center and there are very earnest panel discussions about gender inequality, about migration and climate change. But meanwhile, you know, companies like Salesforce, Palantir, Google, uh, they're holding these giant uh, banquets, parties late into the night at these hotels throughout this little kind of unremarkable village in the Swiss Alps. Uh, every consultant you've ever heard of is there, all the global banks. And it's really become this unofficial summit for the people who write the rules for the rest of us in secret, you know, with no disclosure, no annoying reporters around in these private suites where the, the key members of the forum get access uh, to do their deals, to do their schmoozing, you know, un, unbothered by, by the rest of us. And, you know, the, the, the stories that these guys tell themselves are crucial. You know, it, it's not that we're all supposed to believe, I mean, if we do, that's great for them. If we do believe their narrative, that they're really there under the mantra of committed to improving the state of the world, which is kind of hilarious considering that these guys are the ultimate beneficiaries of the world as it actually is. Mm. Uh, but, you know, if we don't believe that, if we want to poke fun at the fact that you can watch billionaires go simulate the Syrian refugee experience, oh. wandering through the dark, blindfolded, oh. while someone's, you know, shouting some language at them that they don't understand and demanding papers before they go off to have, you know, white truffles and champagne oh, at some God. banquet thrown by a global consulting company. Hey, fine. Okay. So we don't fall for that. We can poke fun at that. But these guys believe it themselves. I mean, the story that they tell to themselves is as important as the story they tell to us because they come out of there having signaled their virtues to one another, having proven their commitment to all of these important challenges like climate change, which armors them to then return home or to one of their many homes, as it were, or their private islands on their private jets, and then continue the real battle, which is the battle to protect their privileges, to prevent uh, annoying people wielding democracy as a way to redistribute some of their wealth. So uh, you kind of you sort of answered a little bit of my question, but do these people? Because you've you've been there to study it, Ten almost times. like oh, oh, almost, my oh my god, god. <laughs> you know it's almost yeah, like I've, you're. I've absorbed a lot of it. 
it's it's almost like you're Steve Irwin and like watching the billionaire in his natural habitat. But, but uh, that's that's the book. It's a taxonomy of the billionaire class. I, I, they are a separate species from from the rest of us, and we have to appreciate them that way. So They're predators who adopt the guise of being our friends. That's how they eat our faces. So do these people genuinely think that we already live in a global meritocracy and that they're just like the hardest working geniuses in the world? Have they fully internalized that? I think the answer is yes. Uh, I mean, wow. look, Mark Benioff, CEO of Salesforce, worth about $10 billion, trustee of the World Economic Forum. Uh, loves to use the kind of bohemian countercultural vernacular in the service of deregulation and running his tech business. He runs Salesforce, this giant Silicon Valley software company. You know, he actually said last year in public at the World Economic Forum, it was virtual, you can go check it out if you want, it's still on the web. He said, CEOs are the real heroes of the pandemic. Now, I mean, this is not a gaffe, this is a, a worldview. He said, you know, if you look at the vaccines that companies have delivered, if you look at the loans that financial firms have put out there to keep businesses alive, uh, he cited the fact that, you know, he pulled strings with his friends at Alibaba in China and sourced 50 million pieces of PPE. We're talking, you know, face masks, medical gowns for frontline medical workers who didn't have it during the first wave of the pandemic. We're the heroes. And he kept saying, and we did all this not for profit, but to save the world. Mm. Now, let's parse that. Uh, first of all, this is a guy who does run uh, some true philanthropic enterprises. He kicks in a, a 1% of the company's revenues and time to all sorts of causes, including homelessness. He sent people to uh, New Orleans after Katrina. Like, that's all real. But this is a company that a couple of times has paid the modest sum of zero in federal taxes on billions of dollars in revenue. So, you know, the rest of that stuff, it's like a rounding error compared to that. I mean, why are we dependent on the crumbs dispensed by a billionaire tech bro for PPE in the middle of a pandemic in the richest, most powerful country on Earth? Well, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that he spent a lot of his money protecting his money from the tax collector. Well, OK, so what he says to give his side of the story here, because he, unlike, I think, most of the other billionaires that you um, talk about in the book, he actually sat for an interview with you. With he you. He yeah. acknowledged that, yeah, Davos isn't perfect, but, hey, we're, we're doing more than we were, and that gap between what we say we are and what we actually are, that's, that's closing all the time. Um, and the other thing I think that he would say is, well, why would we do things like the business roundtable and stakeholder capital? Why would we do these things if, you know, if we didn't really care about saving the world? Right. I mean, he would say those things and does say those things. Uh, Larry Fink, who's another champion of stakeholder capitalism. This is the world's largest asset manager, CEO of a company called BlackRock. They are managing literally more than $10 trillion in university endowments, pension funds from around the world, he adopts a similar stance. I mean, he, he and Benioff would both say, hey, if we don't turn our companies into agents of progress, if we don't realize that our employees want to be on the right side of history, they want to be part of good, then we can't hire the best people. 
Well, you know, first of all, there's a lot of irony to this because this is sort of reminiscent to Milton Friedman years ago saying, oh, there can't possibly be systematic racism in, in corporations or, you know, corporations would never deny themselves access to the best people. The, the market will just spare us of racism. Well, we know that that was a fairy tale. <laughs> and by the way, Salesforce says similar things and Salesforce has a really abysmal record of of, of diversity in its hiring, even though it's prominently brought on people who are supposed to have, have fixed that. So, you know, Larry Fink uh, is, is a guy who every year and recently uh, did this, released his, his shareholder letter, his message of business becoming an agent of good. And he, he puts it in terms of, you know, the markets will eventually punish us and will deprive us of capital if we don't address things like climate change, if we don't help our employees deal with work-life balance and, and, uh, and take care of their children in, in, in the middle of a pandemic. Well, okay, but always left out of this construction and Benioff's construction of so-called stakeholder capitalism is labor unions, the government. You know, this is always about the benevolent CEO solving our problems. And we've just lived through, we are continuing to live through a global emergency that is proving to us that we just can't count on that at all. I mean, look at vaccine distribution, right? So, mm. you know, Benioff, for instance, would say, well, you know, Gavi, this charter member of COVAX, this philanthropic uh, means of distributing vaccines to the world, they were forged at Davos through the well-intentioned people meeting. Hey, it's great to get smart people who know what's going on in, in a room. There's nothing wrong with that. But where's the power? I mean, we've lived, we've just now lived through a period where Pfizer has monopolized the fruits of publicly financed research to take these vaccines and thank goodness for these vaccines. It is wonderful that we have smart researchers who've developed them, but they're selling them to the highest bidder around the world. And as a result, we are now in a time where there are frontline medical workers in Africa treating COVID patients with no protection while we're giving boosters to kids in the United States. And the result of that, by the way, I mean, that's not just a humanitarian catastrophe. That's a catastrophe for purely selfish reasons. Why are we talking about Omicron? I mean, essentially, we, the people, have subsidized the profits of Davos Man, the multimillionaire executives who run Pfizer and their shareholders, so that we can avoid doing right by the public interest through this publicly financed research and force them to distribute their vaccines so that we haven't invited variants like Omicron. Well, and vaccine distribution is the perfect example of what you're talking about because Bill Gates is the man globally in terms of public health, and he gets a whole halo around him these days because of the genuine charitable contributions that he's made. But because he throws around so much money in that space, I mean, the, the whole vaccine distribution that we came up with was effectively his brainchild, he, of course, became a billionaire because of his own anti-competitive behavior and his own abuse of the patent system. So he has an ideological commitment to keeping patent protections in place. That's the whole reason why we have COVAX, which even by their own metrics has been a just absurd failure. Um, a lot of Gates-connected nonprofits also involved directly in COVAX. So on the one hand, he gets to have this halo of like, 
look at Bill Gates doing all this great charitable work trying to help out with vaccine distribution at the very same time that he himself is the biggest obstacle to having cheaper mass-made vaccines available to places like Africa. I think the last numbers in Africa is as a continent, there's something like eight or nine percent of their population that's vaccinated at this point. I mean, it's super revealing that is that once again, in the middle of a public health catastrophe, we've had a debate about intellectual property as opposed to talking about how to get the emergency needed vaccines into the bloodstream around the world as quickly as possible. And this is not the first time, but it's, it's now unavoidable uh, that we've got to reckon with the system of power that determines who gets what on planet Earth. I mean, it's a system that has been rigged by Davos man for the perpetuation of Davos man's own wealth. Uh, and and the, the public interest is, is just a sort of footnote to all of this. And Davos itself, I mean, back to your question about the forum, is the perfect place for this charade. Because, you know, I've been to uh, gatherings there of pharmaceutical industry executives, you know, in, in little conference rooms with, uh, with earnest moderators asking, you know, What's up with the unaffordability of drugs? As if it's some sort of, you know, mystery. Uh, it, it, everyone who's in the room is like beyond reproach. I mean, there you are. You're a participant in this thing that demonstrates you are committed to improving the state of the world. So it's always got to be like a misunderstanding. It's, <laughs> it's some complexity of globalization. We haven't settled on the right model. You know, let's all put our heads together as opposed to, no, it's that the people in the room have all the money, basically, and they've prioritized their take and the shareholders mm. take over the life-saving capacity of what they're making yeah so in other words they, they like grandfather in their own greed and then after they grandfather that in they're like we should probably try to make some stuff better but you know that's the, <laughs> that's the gist of it um to the point that like oh look if we aren't great the market will punish us that's particularly hilarious because in the u.s the fed uh rewards corporate America no matter what. I mean, they just started buying corporate debt. So it's, it, no matter what, they end up winning. Um, how do you respond to an argument that a, a lot of people, I think, find this argument persuasive and powerful, but how do you respond to, like, the Steven Pinker, Pinker argument about, hey, look, uh, system's not perfect, but extreme poverty is dropping around the world, and that's uh, necessarily because of global capitalism. Well, look, I'm not here to knock global capitalism. I'm a proud capitalist. Like I, I kick them off the I show, boys. <laughs> cut, cut the line. <laughs> we we don't need a revolution. We need a reinstatement of the rules that we've already had. I mean, the the people have already stared down the robber barons once in the United States, and what we got was uh, a period after World War II that was far from perfect, right? Like from '45 to '75, we had the Vietnam War. Uh, we we had Jim Crow uh, and systematic discrimination on on the basis of gender, on the basis of race. I don't want a time machine back to 1975, but boy, I sure would like a reinstatement of antitrust enforcement. I sure would like progressive taxation uh, and rule, uh, uh, labor power. Uh, yeah. and new I, Deal I politics. Mean, you want New you Deal know. politics. Yeah, right. I mean, not not like, you know, pledges from corporate CEOs that, oh, we get it. We have to be nice to our workers, but like actual collective bargaining where the workers have a say in their conditions and where they get a share of the productivity gains. I mean, if we had all of those things, 
we'd fix an awful lot of problems. And and we'd also then be living in a society where people have a reason to, to trust in the process uh, such that we could tackle really uh, important, I mean, the, the most crucial problems like climate change. But I you mean, know, now nobody's going to sacrifice because they can see that, you know, well, Benioff's not sacrificing. He's looking for win-win solutions. Larry Fink thinks that, you know, if 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 companies are looked after, then wealth will trickle down. So, you know, that's a that's a shell game, right? That's happened zero times in history. So as as a result of that, people don't believe in anything. And if people don't believe in anything, it's pretty hard to solve any problem at all. So the one problem I did have with the book is, you know, you focus on the individual characters. And I think it's really important to show their sort of like their particular games that they're playing, the way that they're rigging the market. I mean, the idea that we have this like free and fair market is totally absurd. These guys don't want a free and fair market. They spend all of their time thinking about ways to rig the market to their own benefit. So I think that's that's really important. I got a lot out of the book. But my view is if it wasn't these guys, it'd be other men doing very similar things because that is the capitalist system that we've set up. And so you track how even in places like Italy, places like Sweden, places like the UK, when COVID came, even though they had some of the protections you're talking in place, even though they had universal health care, because you'd left the door open for private capitalists to turn a buck on their healthcare system, their capacity was dramatically stripped back and it made them unable to sufficiently respond to the pandemic. So actually isn't the problem capitalism versus these individual men? Well, I think it's certainly structural. I, I'm, I mean, by no means, <clears throat> excuse me, have I written a book that says, you know, the problem is Mark Benioff, Larry Fink, Steve Schwartzman, Jamie Dimon, and Jeff Bezos. Like, for sure. If it wasn't these guys, I mean, I could have written a book about 27 other guys uh, that would have told exactly the same story. There's no question that the problems are structural and, and those structural problems are global. But I would still argue, you know, it's not, the problem isn't our, that capitalism per se, it's the kind of capitalism that we've had. We don't have capitalism. What we have is corporate welfare for billionaires who write the rules and then rugged individualism for everyone else. So let me, ask a, I mean, let me ask a slightly yeah, different question. Is there a place that you think is doing capitalism right? I mean, I think if you look, you know, I, I look at Sweden where uh, they have uh, essentially downgraded the social safety net in a way that left them very vulnerable to the pandemic. And they effectively traded the lives of senior citizens uh, by subjecting them to COVID to protect the rest of the national healthcare system. That's not a great example. But the overall thrust of the Swedish economy, I mean, the Nordics in general are organized quite, quite well. I mean, I, I remember going to Sweden for the first time to go do a story on uh, some on a mining operation where the truck drivers were threatened with the loss of their jobs from automation. And I was really struck by how everyone I spoke to said, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's good. You know, if it makes the company more competitive, uh, then we're for it. And if it costs us this particular job, they'll train us for some other job. I mean, that was not some sort of like blind faith. That was based on lived experience. They lived in society where labor unions are very powerful, where they sit down across the table 
from employers associations, and they hammer out agreements that everyone understands are going to have to give the workers a just share of the gains of productivity. So that actually makes it much easier to be entrepreneurial. I mean, it's a lot easier to go, you know, launch a startup company in a country where there is national health care and where, you know, the loss of a job doesn't put you under a highway oh, overpass in Los Angeles. But, you know, it's so Kyle and I are basically social Democrats. And one of the arguments that people further to our left make is that, listen, if you have the Nordic model and you still leave the door open for these, you know, private capitalists to come in, eventually over time, you've sowed the seeds of destruction of that social democratic model. I hadn't really bought into that argument, but in some ways your book actually persuaded me that there might be huh. more to it because you do track how in Sweden, even though they have this bedrock commitment, it was very easily shaken when they had a wave of refugees who came in, who were then scapegoated, and very similar right. playbook as what was run in the, in the U.S., your tax dollars are going to these freeloaders who have no interest in integrating into society, never right. mind that that was all a lie and they were there taking, like, Swedish lessons and trying to find a job as best that they possibly could. But that worked pretty well. And, in fact, the social services did start to be stripped back. And, in fact, the nursing homes did start to be privatized, which is why you had this mass wave of, you know, pandemic deaths in Sweden right. that you track in the book. So it did seem to me that even in that instance that, you know, we look at those countries as models as well, it was ultimately uh, stripped down and stripped back by these same people because you did leave the system open and vulnerable to their assaults and their, you know, their tax cutting measures. I have a response yeah, to I, that. I'll let you go first and then I want to respond to what Crystal just said. Well, I, I take your point. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think to some extent we could be having, you know, a semantic conversation. I mean, I think there have to be rules in any setup, whether you want to call it social democracy or some version of free market. I mean, even in a free market, like markets will just turn into monopoly power if there aren't regulations. You you need uh, an honest arbiter to ensure that there are things like social protections for people who fail, financed by progressive taxation. There need to be rules to limit the concentration of companies because otherwise they'll abuse. And, I, you know, I, I take your point. I mean, I think our faith in just about any system can be shaken uh, by the pandemic. But still, you know, if you look at even how Sweden, uh, to say nothing of other northern countries that have done much better than Sweden, because Sweden engaged in this kind of madhouse of a of a libertarian response to the pandemic in a reach for, for herd immunity. I mean, the death rates in places like like Finland, uh, Norway, Denmark, you know, are much lower than in Sweden. They did they did much better, and they limited unemployment. Uh, they the state essentially came in and just took over the payrolls for a time, uh, and encouraged employers to hang on to their workers. And that's you know that's proved to be a, a, a pretty good model. I I just think I mean my fundamental point is we, sh we don't need to engage in the terminology of our models, but we do need to stop falling for the, the scary story peddled by some political opportunist on top of the pillaging by Davos. So, you know, look, China is a huge uh, challenge to the global trading system. Mm -hmm. We should be talking about China. It's a complicated conversation that could fill up, you know, its own hour. But we shouldn't be looking to China to explain why so many people in the Rust Belt of the United States have essentially been abandoned. I mean, those are decisions that, I mean, rather, that story reflects decisions that have been made in boardrooms in New York and Seattle and in Congress and, and in successive presidential administrations. We certainly have the capacity 
China threat or no in the United States to take the winnings of globalization, and the U.S. is overwhelmingly a net winner from globalization, and do a much better job sharing the proceeds more broadly. I mean, Jeff Bezos shouldn't end up with all the loot from Amazon. He should share some of it, not only with you know just basic protections for his warehouse workers, sick pay, uh, but better wages across the board, better working conditions for for everyone. So uh, I'll. I want to respond to what you said, and then either one of you can jump in here. So the counterargument, as you correctly laid out to people who are advocates of social democracy, is that it, it plants the seeds of its own destruction because, you know, you leave the ability for the pendulum to swing and it just to get worse again. And in the U.S., we have a great example of that. In the FDR era, all the New Deal programs, and then you had um, Ronald Reagan come in and say, you know, the scariest words in the Eng English language are, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. And so then we just went all the way back in the other direction and we're back in a sort of uh, pseudo Lochner era in terms of the way the Supreme Court is ruling as well. Um, there's a couple responses to that. Number one is, I think the, the reason we don't already have social democracy in this country is simply because of the corrupting influence of money in politics. So if you get the, the lobbyist money, the corporate money, the billionaire money out of the system, and you actually have a government that's more representative of the will of the people, then you will see more of a social democratic system. Uh, 100%. But be, correct. But, but beyond that, um, there's another way to sort of have a more protected social democracy, in my opinion, which is just have it constitutional. You know, that's the, the brilliance of a constitution, as you say, look, these are the things that are off the table, and then we can debate about everything else uh, you know, around the edges, and we could have, you know, democratic solutions for the things that are not already protected and are set in stone and are right and are sort of off the table. And yeah, you could have whatever, two-thirds or three-fourths of the country in order to to revise the Constitution. But if you have constitutionally protected social democracy in the realm of health care and college and all that stuff, then that's a way to more protect it, to to make sure that the muddied interests don't get in there and sort of ruin the good thing that we have going. Right. Uh, but but I mean, I think it's telling that the reason why we can't have lots of things that clearly majorities of people in, in our own country really want, like access to health care, like affordable education, like some help with housing when we get into trouble, uh, like effective job training programs for people uh, who are productive, but they can't do this thing that they, they used to be doing. We're, we're constantly running into this truth for and it's not a truth it's a lie but it, it has the force of a truth for large numbers of people that well we can't possibly afford those things because baked into the cake is that we need these massive tax cuts constant tax cuts that are supposed to be uh giving us more economic growth that are supposed to trickle down to everyone i mean again this has happened zero times we've run an open air experiment in this idea, I call it the cosmic lie in my book. And and it it's not that there's something deficient in our understanding. You know, in Davos, like I, I heard this incredible conversation. Do you remember that viral moment when Rucker Bregman was yes. this young? You know, so Rucker Bregman goes to this um, conference and it, a lot of people saw this in their, in their social feeds because it went viral. He says, you know, why is everyone talking about inequalities if it's some sort of mystery? I feel like I'm at a firefighters convention and no one's allowed to talk about water. It's just taxes, taxes, taxes. Everything else, he says more colorfully than I will, you know, is, is, is BS. And what was extraordinary about that moment was what followed it. This guy, Edward Felsenthal, who is the editor-in-chief of Time magazine, by then owned by Mark Benioff, turns to Jane Goodall, a naturalist, and says, what is it about our species that prevents us 
from being able to you know, realize the solutions to our problems as if, again, it's some sort of mystery. It's some sort of deficiency in her, in our species, as opposed to, well, the people who are dominating this conference, who are paying the freight, who are holding all the banquets, they actually don't feel like paying their taxes. It's pretty simple. So they've given us all kinds of narratives and fairy tales around how we're all going to win if they win too. And yeah, we can laugh about it, but that actually is has guiding force in our democracy. And that's that's I, I agree. The only way we deal with that is to get campaign finance under control so that we actually have a democracy. Yeah, because right now the will of the voters, I mean, look at so many issues have 70, 80 percent of voters on board and still it goes nowhere in Congress. Um, you know, one of my New Year's resolutions for 2022 is to talk more and focus more on the Fed because it's so powerful yeah. in the economy and there's very little conversation of it in the mainstream press in a way that's accessible. We just had um, Chris Leonard on who wrote a terrific book about Great the book. Fed. Yeah. Love and and reminded us, too, that, you know, monetary policy used to be something that was broadly debated. William Jennings Bryan, Cross of Gold, populist movements around this. So that's one of my resolutions. You gave me another of my 2022 resolutions, which is to talk more about BlackRock, because hmm. their tentacles are in almost everything, um, including, you know, the housing market to an insane right. extent. But you laid out in a dramatic fashion just how intimately they were involved in the pandemic response with their hands basically on one side, working with Mnuchin to pick the winners and losers, and on the other side, of course, benefiting from their own choices and being one of those great winners. Yeah, that's right. Um, and not for the first time. You know, this happened after, after the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, give props to Larry Fink. He's a very smart guy. He helped invent the mortgage-backed security. He has an extremely sophisticated understanding of finance, and he's doing deals with everyone. I mean, originally, as he started out as a, as a money manager, he put a lot of stock in data because uh, he actually lost a previous banking job through this, uh, this colossal misread of the market based on what turned out to be a, a data error in his model. So he's assembled... A tremendous understanding of flows of money around the world, and that's turned into this product used by financial entities that manage, the last time I checked, upwards of $20 trillion in assets around the globe that can sort of sniff out signs of trouble, instability, unusual patterns that investors ought to be aware of. So this is a guy whose counsel is valuable, uh, not just to other investors, but to the government. So after, after the 2008 financial crisis, he essentially got the gig as Uncle Sam's financial advisor in trying to figure out, you know, what's what are going to be the consequences of Lehman falling, who could be rescuing whom so that we can get back to some semblance of normalcy. Well, this time it's even more amazing. I mean, he's essentially gotten the role of uh, portfolio manager for the Fed in selecting the securities that it was buying to prop up asset markets as uh, markets around the world went into, you know, just a, a global uh, disastrous plunge in March of 2020. Um, and of course, you know, like in every crisis, it's about propping up assets in the name of trickle down uh, more than anything. Now, I, I don't mean to be dismissive of very significant expanded unemployment benefits, a whole host of programs, child tax credits that that we eventually got that were pretty significant uh, as a response. But but. Chiefly, it was about rescuing asset prices, which is good 
if you're an asset holder. And think we've learned from the contracts, BlackRock actually got terms that allowed it to go to the Fed side of the wall and see what the Fed was seeing, what the Fed was thinking strategically, execute their strategy by buying securities. Oh, and guess what? A lot of the securities were going into exchange-traded funds controlled by BlackRock, because BlackRock was smart enough to buy uh, this uh, iShares uh, exchange-traded fund platform from Barclays during the last crisis. And investors were smart enough to assume correctly that a lot of the Fed's money was going to end up in these BlackRock investments. <laughs> so they got in first, anticipating an increase. They made money. Uh, that's more trading volume for, for, for BlackRock. And then BlackRock's advisors, looking at what the Fed uh, is doing, yeah, they're not supposed to be able to trade on that or talk to clients. You know, They have to stay on their side of the wall. But after a couple of weeks cooling off period, they can just go back to their regular jobs advising clients, essentially using inside information gleaned from the world's central banker. That's a pretty good gig if you can get it. And it, and it helps, helps us understand why someone like Larry Fink has the worldview that he has, where you know he and his investor class friends, his fellow Davos men, have to be protected at all costs with the understanding that they will just, you know, benef uh, of their own beneficence, take care of the rest of our needs. Nice to know the entire economy is a giant scam. Um, which, which billionaire at Davos, in your experience, has the most uh, wretched politics? most wretched politics um, well you know that's obviously a subjective question but i mean the davos man who doesn't really pretend to be a savior though i think he uh still uh projects uh, well, I, let me take that back he kind of does actually so steve schwartzman you know steve schwartzman is a guy who uh finances trump's uh second campaign though not his first though he kicks in two hundred fifty thousand dollars to his uh inaugural committee understanding that his florida neighbor you know these are guys who dine together at mar -a lago they have i mean schwartzman you know you have to understand owns mansions the way most of us own socks but one of them is pretty close to mar -a lago so they dine together trump went to his uh six schwartzman's 60th birthday party uh, which cost about $5 million. Schwartzman later described it as uh, a, a gathering of 600 people we care about. Mm. Uh, he, he understood that Trump was a way to get tax cuts and deregulation. And, huh. and Trump delivered. I mean, Trump also opened up new frontiers like 401k plans to Schwartzman's uh, various funds, which typically involved jacking up fees for investors without better returns that they could get simply buying low-cost uh, index funds. Schwartzman profited mightily on the foreclosure crisis. And in true Davos man style, when you ask them, when you ask him about that, he says, hey, this was a public service. You know, I mean, these houses were sinking into a state of disrepair. There were lawns uh, overgrowing these abandoned properties that nobody could afford anymore. And we came in and we fixed them up. We mowed the lawns. We got rid of the vermin and we turned them into homes for other people. And, you know, you can almost hear the soundtrack for like an insurance commercial where there's <laughs> like a beautiful, you know, golden retriever puppy romping on the lawn with a baby. Uh he started Invitation Homes. What a great name for a company. And they, by uh, the account of you know much reporting, jacked up rents. 
They cut maintenance. They made it impossible for anybody to reach anybody when something went awry with their plumbing and their electrical system. And then they've repeated that trick around the world, including in Sweden. Uh, and now they're uh, doubling down during the pandemic to buy up more distressed housing. And they're using this new system called the rent to buy system that uh, is enticing a lot of people to chase after the dream of home ownership though they're giving up when their rents get jacked up so much that it no longer becomes uh, sustainable for them. That is incredible. Um, how did these guys relate to Trump? Because in some ways, like it's interesting to me, Schwartzman backs him, all right, once he's in. But back when he was first running and it seemed like, all right, he's throwing around, we're going to get on a TPP, we're going to, you know, uh, bring jobs back, we're going to take a tough, have tariffs with tough line with China and something's not going to cut social security. Right. right. You know, it's sort of signaling like he might be a little bit different than the typical Republican in terms of economic policy. Of course, as soon as he comes in, He's the, just his same. biggest accomplishment is gigantic tax cut that benefits the men that you profile in this book. So how do these uh, these guys that you're looking at, how do they think about Trump in the beginning? And does their view change over time? And how do they relate to him with regards even to the forum? Well, that's a great question. Um, I was at Davos in January 2018 when Trump showed up, and this was the source of great titillation. It was anticipated like a prize fight. I mean, I describe it in the book as, you know, if you believe in the whole fairy tale of Davos as this kind of everyone's so interested in gender equality and climate change and and uh, global cooperation, you know, then everyone's aghast. I, I describe it as like something like uh, a guy who runs a topless barbecue joint showing up at a gathering of, of pious Talmudic scholars. Uh, but that was pure artifice. I mean, most Davos men, you know, let, let, let's get real. Like, they don't really believe in any kind of ideology. They'll tell you about free markets when that's in their interest. They'll tell you about the need for rescues when they can turn a rescue into their advantage, some new form of corporate welfare. And with Trump, yeah, I think there there was, you know, a certain amount of uneasiness that he was constantly saying misogynistic and racist things. Uh, I mean, Schwartzman had to uh, disband this advisory council uh, after uh, Trump's comments on Charlottesville and, you know, expressing solidarity with neo-Nazis on the march. I mean, this is this is radioactive for these guys. They can't they can't endorse it. But privately, it was very clear at Davos that year, they were greeting. I mean, the people actually matter at Davos. I mean, let, let's 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 be clear on this. There are you know there are diplomats from African countries who are aghast that a guy who literally writes off an entire continent as a bunch of shithole countries uh, is now showing up. Uh, the 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 well-intentioned activists uh, were appalled uh, by the specter of Trump showing up. But the people who actually write the checks who run the banquets. I mean, Benioff, who you know brought in the black-eyed peas for a private conference. Like, they're crowing about how their sales are goosed by tax cuts. There's a feeling they all say that investment's now pouring into America, and they like the money that they get to hang on to that they didn't previously have to give to Uncle Sam, courtesy of Donald Trump's $1.5 trillion package of tax cuts, you know, vacuumed up overwhelmingly and by design uh, by Davos men. Well, it seems to me their biggest problem with regards to Donald Trump is that he kind of gives up the game, right? They've constructed this whole elaborate artifice 
of how committed to gender equality they are and equal rights and saving the planet and all of this. And then when it comes down to it, here's Trump who stands against all of those things they pretend to care about, but he gives them the tax cuts that they want. And so they're happy. But they double down on it. I mean, Klaus Schwab, who started the forum and is still the ringleader, he's the MC every year, wrote a book called Stakeholder Capitalism, you know, talks about public-private partnerships, international cooperation, like that's his whole MO. He welcomes Trump to the stage and he praises him for inclusivity. That's the <laughs> word that he actually uses. And he, he, he basically takes Trump's own talking points and says, you've built an economy that's benefiting everyone. And he even says, this, this was so gratuitous that even at Davos, where people are very you know, consciously civil, like you don't hear much heckling, if ever, mm -hmm. uh, you, you hear this real murmur of discomfort as Schwab says, well, we know that your leadership is subject to many misunderstandings. So it's good to hear from you directly. I mean, the artifice, when it comes up against the money, the money wins, you know, every time. And I mean, Schwab himself, you know, is a guy who lectures the world on corporate governance. And he essentially runs the World Economic Forum like his own Chinese state-owned enterprise. I mean, he he dominates uh, the he has an events business that he, well, he, he did have an events business. He sold it to publicists uh, for uh, many millions of dollars after you know creating this company using the forum's own funds. The forum is technically a nonprofit as a kind of venture capital fund. Uh, and then he gave this events business an exclusive contract to serve all the forum events around the world. He sent his nephew to Boston uh, to go launch this video um, conferencing business back in the dot-com time because, you know, he'd been hanging out with Jeff Bezos, who was a star draw at Davos in those days, and I guess he he wanted some of that money. And his nephew, Hans Schwab, who, who gave me a series of incredible interviews, describes, you know, going off to Boston, finding investors, selling this video conferencing business to uh, a company called U.S. Web, and at the last minute, his uncle Klaus calls him and says, actually, you need to transfer all the shares to this new fund that the nephew had never heard of. It's like a black box. It's called the, the World Economic Forum uh, Fund. It, it, I'm sorry, it's called the Klaus and Hilda, that's his wife, Schwab uh, Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And you know they'll, they put out press releases about how they're drilling wells, giving clean water to people in poor countries. They're, they're making it possible for girls to attend school, but nobody really knows where that money goes. And it comes out of a profit-making venture started by a supposedly nonprofit. So, you know, it doesn't take long to find dramatic inconsistencies between the ethos of the forum and reality. So, uh, I mean, with names like Klaus and Hans Schwab, we're lucky that they're not goose-stepping Nazis. Um, <laughs> Because every time you say their names, I'm like, Jesus Christ, they got a shrine to Himmler somewhere. Um, do these people not have an understanding of uh, U.S. economic history, or do they simply not care? Because when you look at—here's just one example. Um, during the Great Depression, the top 1% held over 20% of the nation's wealth. It was like, I think, 22 or 23%. During the golden age of economic expansion, it was only between 9% and 12% that they held. And then during the Great Recession, it was back to over 20%. The top 1% held over 20% of the nation's wealth. Do these people not understand, or do they just not care, that, like, 
hey, when the super wealthy have so much more wealth than everybody else and the income inequality and the wealth inequality gets so out of whack and the Gini coefficient is is off the charts that it threatens the viability of the whole system. Oh, they understand. I mean, the forum's full of truly brilliant people. They put out very useful research reports. I mean, this is not like a gathering of dummies. It's just that what Schwab understands more than anything is the value of his brand. And, you know, when he first started growing Davos, he understood that if you're just a gathering of CEOs talking about how to make more money, then you're competing with, you know, Forbes and Fortune and The Economist and like every other brand that you've heard of. He, his genius was to come up with this mantra committed to improving the state of the world. We're simply going there demonstrates, you know, your civic, vir your, 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 your virtues, right? You're signaling your virtues through participation. But the, the real value for him is as a network, right? So like in 2017, uh, where I do some of the reporting for this, for what turns into this book, though I don't realize it at the time, you know, he welcomes Xi Jinping to the stage and essentially says, you know, your people have entrusted you with it. Really? Xi Jinping was elected in, a, in some popular election. I, <laughs> I, I must have missed that somewhere. I mean, the value of getting Xi Jinping to Davos for Klaus Schwab is enormous because if there are a whole bunch of senior Chinese Communist Party officials running around, that is valuable for his real constituency. And that's the the corporate members who pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for membership to the forum. They pay tens of thousands of dollars to attend. And by being, you know, like it's it's like the way the airlines run their platinum, you know, their gold. By by being in the upper tiers, they get Klaus Schwab playing matchmaker, allowing them access to these private uh, executive suites where you know, people like me, I'm just a mere, you know, white badge holder, which is at least better than being a, a lowly uh, journalist badge holder where you can't really go anywhere. You can sit in these rooms totally unbothered by regulators, by journalists, by anybody. And Klaus Schwab gets people to keep paying because everybody knows that he can get the other people to come. So it's worth looking past Trump, Xi Jinping, Narendra Modi. I mean, Narendra Modi at a time when uh, his his party comprised of Hindu supremacists in India is literally threatening to behead Bollywood actors who are offending, you know, other Hindu supremacists in terms of their recounting of Hindu legends. Like Schwab is lauding him for his tremendous leadership and lifting people out of poverty in India. Like he needs to get people there more than anything. Everything else is malleable in the same way that Davos man ultimately just cares about the bottom line and will trot out whatever ideology is required to get to the outcome that he needs that. I mean, Schwab is the ultimate Davos man. He he, he does precisely the same thing. And how about Jeff Bezos? You cover him in this piece. You have a wonderful um segment where you describe uh, Christian Small, someone who I've interviewed a number of times who sure. really, I mean, talk about a courageous person. Here's right. this one guy who sees something that is deadly wrong at the Amazon warehouse where he's working, um, you know, single father, three little kids, has to know that he's risking his job to stand up for his own health, but also the health and safety and well-being of his fellow co-workers ultimately gets fired. By the way, there's an ongoing lawsuit about that, alleging that it was wrongful termination. He's now involved in an effort to try to unionize Amazon workers. But this is the one of the things that I know Kyle and I have both covered is the distance between, you know, the Jeff Bezos who would put Black Lives Matter on the Amazon home screen and talk about how oh, we've got to do better by our workers, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then in reality, the way he's actually treating his mostly black and brown blue collar workers. Totally. No, that's so important. I mean, so the Christian Small story may be familiar to a lot of people, but, you know, a couple things jumped out at me in my own conversations with him. One is, you know, he he pointed out that while Bezos is copping to the fact that they don't have enough PPE for warehouse workers, they don't have masks, they don't even have hand sanitizer, you know, early in the pandemic, uh, Bezos puts out this letter, Dear Amazonians, where he says, yeah, it's true. It's really hard to get this stuff. Uh, but, you know, meanwhile, Christian Smalls and his colleagues in Staten Island are taking hand sanitizer and gowns and face masks and putting them into boxes that they're shipping off to people who can pay for those things. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty clear, like, who matters? Like, the customer, because the customer turns into revenue, as opposed to the workers, that's just a cost to be managed. And Bezos continues in that letter to essentially say, well— you know, you guys are engaged in this heroic struggle where you're saving other people. We've 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 sort of shuffled the priority of the goods we're managing so that we can get things like hand sanitizer out the door to people who need it. And Smalls tells me, like, this is just made up. He says they're putting all the same stuff you would expect for them to be putting into boxes at a time when we're all, you know, locked up in our basements and our bedrooms during the pandemic. Sex toys, baking goods, video game consoles. He said they were just like laughing bitterly about this letter. And when Smalls becomes, uh, a, a, you know, a public person, when he, he becomes the, the leader of this insurrection in Staten Island, and then eventually part of this continuing uh, as you correctly note, you know, labor movement aimed at unionizing Amazon. Uh, they have this meeting. I mean, Vice News has this incredible scoop where they get the the notes of this meeting where Amazon's general counsel presents these talking points to top executives, including Bezos, where he says, well, let's focus on the fact that uh, Smalls is not smart and not articulate. And if we can make him the public face of this, we stand to benefit. Now, Small is a guy who grew up in Newark, New Jersey, predominantly African-American community, had spent his career working in places where management was white, the workers were black. He described, you know, one place to me where, you know, the white managers are riding around on trucks, yelling at the workers on forklifts. He said it was like cotton picking. I mean, this is the context that Small is experiencing this. And now the general counsel of Amazon, who's a guy, you know, who grew up in rarefied New Jersey suburbs, who, you know, has pictures on his Facebook feed of him, you know, hiking in beautiful mountains and a picture of John Lewis is mm. actively saying, well, Ugh. let's. Let's go after Smalls for being, as he puts it, not smart and not articulate. No one protests, including Bezos. When I pressed Amazon on that, the, the, the PR people there literally said, well, Mr. Zapolsky, the general counsel, was not aware of Mr. Smalls' Please. race when he Please. made those comments. Please. Okay. Yeah, and also, by the way, I mean, anyone who's watched an interview with Chris Smalls or met him or spoken with him knows how just utterly absurd. I mean, clearly this man has been a absolute force to be reckoned with and uh, lit a fire nationwide. So the characterization was uh, badly mistaken, I would say, as well. I mean, yeah. which is why they use a racist trope to try to undermine 100%. it. 100%. So uh, having been in the room with this, you know, gathering of people with inconceivable wealth, um, what what do you make of, like, conspiracies that go one step further like mm -hmm. you know what i mean the great like, reset stuff no not the great no no no, not that not that 
like what's the name of the the fraternity that all the presidents were in i, I i'm blanking on the name of it uh, there's some fraternity that all the presidents were in and whether it's skull and bones or something right like the illuminati the bilderberg yeah. like all yeah, that crazy right. alex jones there's stuff that's obviously right. insane like pizzagate QAnon. Right. there's stuff sure. that goes way too far but then there's also like well jeffrey epstein really was like a the ceo of elite sex crimes incorporated like that's real so having been in the room with these people what do you think is real and what do you think is false can you imagine like maybe it goes a step deeper with like a closer fraternity that it you know maybe has even more control than we realize i mean i don't think we have to go there Uh, yeah i don't i don't think that davos man is like part of some you know massive i mean true conspiracy where they're like you know the puppeteers uh I just think we can see what they're doing in plain view. And it's happened uh, so systematically, but gradually over decades as to effectively be invisible. So it's like, you know, it's sort of like climate change, right? Yeah, it's, it's like so brazen. You don't yeah. really see it until there's a massive storm and then, you know, you, you see it. And so now we're actually in a global emergency where it's emphatically clear that, you know, allowing people like Steve Schwartzman to dictate how we get our health care, to inject profit motives without regulation into our healthcare sphere was disastrous. Uh, you know, allowing uh, Larry Fink uh, to run the financial system when we know that he spends all of his time immersed in the world of the investor class. Like these are ultimately his clients and he will tell you that he ultimately has got fiduciary duty. He can say everything he wants about, well, we should, you know, divest from companies. He will say he won't, he personally will not divest from uh, companies involved in fossil fuels because they're part of the solution. You know, they, they, you know, we don't need a conspiracy to explain the reality that a handful of people effectively write the rules and they write the rules according to this fantasy that we're all going to benefit if they benefit. And so that's what they've, they've, they, they've been doing. Yeah, yeah. I like to say it really is an open conspiracy because we've effectively legalized corruption in the country with a number of Supreme Court decisions starting in the late 1970s and going all the way up to today, uh, whether it's Citizens United or McCutcheon or Buckley versus Vallejo or or, uh, First National Bank of Boston versus Bellotti. There was a number of Supreme Court decisions where we decided, hey, money basically equals free speech. So, you know, if a grandma in Cleveland can only afford to send $5 to the political candidate of their choice, well, guess what? You got this billionaire over here who can write... uh, a number of checks in a thousand different ways, whether it's to a political party or to a PAC or to the campaign directly or to the individual. And yeah, that tally is like 1.2 million, but get over it. That's free speech. And that's the way the system works. So the conspiracy is right there out in the open that like we've legalized bribery. And then you see all the laws they pass are to serve these interests. Yeah. I mean, the conspiracy is things like, like you expose, like, okay, BlackRock is on one side making all the decisions about helping to make all the decisions about who gets bailed out and who gets what money, and then they're on the other side also benefiting. I mean, these are things that are publicly known that explain the state of affairs that we exist in. What do you think? uh, I think I just saw Davos get postponed or something for this year, but because of COVID. What do you think? Yeah, for the second year in a row. Oh, really? So what do you think will be the big kind of conversations at Davos this year, both like the forward facing ones, but also the ones that are happening that actually matter behind the scenes? Oh, I mean, they're definitely going to be talking about the pandemic and the need for responsible corporate leadership. And we've got to address inequality. I mean, this is what they do every year. I mean, the, the 
the book for me begun begins in 2017, where you know Brexit's just happened. This is January 2017. Brexit's happened. Trump's been elected, uh, and there's a sense that whether we like it or not, uh, there are forces unle unleashed in the global economy that are connected to inequality that we've really got to reckon with. Uh, and so there are all these panel discussions on inequality and and uh, uh, new models for equity and the workplace, you know, all this kind of stuff and, and taxation. And I, I went around just sampling the solutions, and it was all stuff like you know, workers have to train themselves to take advantage of jobs where their skills are in need. Ray Dalio, the hedge fund guy who's at that point is worth like $18 billion, says we need to deregulate to unleash the animal spirits so that there's a more conducive environment for making money as if a guy you know, worth $18 billion is somehow suffering a, a lack of incentive to make money. Uh, you know, Ariana Huffington, who has to work for at, at, at HuffPost, you know, has just launched her new uh, website called Thrive, which is all about <laughs> vacuuming up sponsorships from spas. And it's all about you know, pillows. We all need better pillows. I mean, it's everything except for actual okay. sacrifice. Like the people who are here are going to have to give something up. That's how, you know, that's what inequality is. You have too much. You have to give up something. That's, yeah. It's not very complicated. That's a, And that's a part that is ultimately totally off the table. And then you as a journalist, what are some of the economic trends that you think are going to be important this year? What do you make of the sort of, you know, the great resignation and the labor struggles that um, have been cropping up in 2021 and continuing into 2022? I mean, it's great that labor suddenly got momentum uh, toward, you know, workers getting a better deal. Uh, we've lived through in the U.S. 40 years of workers not getting their share of productivity gains. And and it's nice that pay is up, although it's 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 being undercut by inflation, which in many cases is the result of monopoly power, which is another thing that we've got to deal with. But, you know, this stuff's temporary. It's not like the the structure has changed. It's not like collective bargaining is back. And again, if you go back to Larry Fink's uh, shareholder letter of this week, you know, he's, he says, well, you know, the clear takeaway from the pandemic is, is uh, we got to be nicer to our workers. Well, again, it's all unilateral. It's you on top of the mountain, it, it, assuming that's even true. Right. And clearly a lot of companies are having to pay more for their labor because it's highly competitive and workers are, are resigning and, and staying home and, and the expanded unemployment benefits did help uh, allow people to say, you know, maybe I don't want to put myself in harm's way uh, for a job if I don't absolutely have to. But these trends can go away as quickly as they materialized. Unless we actually get new rules so that labor can organize, nothing meaningful has changed. I think that is well said and a good place to end as we look forward to this year. Um, the book, guys, is Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Peter Goodman, great to have you. Thank you so much for spending some great time with us. Great to be here. Thank you for your wonderful questions. Yeah, our pleasure. All right, so there you have it. That's Peter Goodman. Um, you love the book. Yes, it yeah, was you... really, I got a lot out of it. Yeah. Um, one little anecdote that he has in here is about how Amazon, at the same time, they're putting out this letter to their to their workers about how they're heroes and they're helping people get through the pandemic. At the same time that they were saying all of that, they jacked up the cost of a box of disposable face masks from like $4 to $40 or something absurd like that. They jacked up the cost of soap from $1 to $7. I mean, it's just like... 
so brazen. But I thought the point that that you and he were making at the end, too, of like, you know, the system is rigged. These are the people that have done it. Um, and the structure that we have allowed with campaign, you know, with money as speech and all of that has created that structure. But the rigging is all out in the open. Right. Like, yeah. It doesn't have to be some secret cabal because they've bought our legislators. They've written the rules. It's all there for you to see. They're brought into the meeting with Steve Mnuchin and are like, OK, tell us where to put the money. And, yeah, we're cool with it if billions of it go into straight into your pockets. And that's what makes it extra egregious is that it's so out in the open. But yet it still feels like there's an intuitive consciousness around. It, but people don't know the specifics. People don't really get all right. the... Well, it's kind of like, I mean, this was kind of Trump's magic because he would say this stuff out in the open and not hide it. It made it hard to, it actually made it kind of hard to make it scandalous because he'd just own up to like whatever ridiculousness that it was. So if it was secret and then it was exposed, it would probably be a greater scandal than just the business as usual that it ultimately ends up being. Well, like, like when he was basically was like, yeah, I don't pay taxes. Remember that? Yeah. He's like, yeah, I pay. That makes me smart. That's what he said on that's the debate right. stage. And everybody was like, yeah, I'd that's, like to not pay taxes. But you are a working class person. You are. He's the way. not because he's a billionaire and he's got the attorneys and he gets all the loopholes. And and I, that's the thing. That's the way that they got, these guys think. They don't believe in a free market. They believe in being able to rig the rules to benefit themselves. That is their only ideology. That is the only thing that they're committed to. They don't care about war crimes. They don't care about human rights. They don't care about diversity. They don't care about the planet. They care about their bottom yeah. line. And they put this thin veneer of, oh, but we really do care about the people. And let's have endless panel discussions about what we're going to do when these problems are so hard to solve. When actually the problem is not hard to solve. It just involves taking some of your stuff. Well, the fact that they also seem to actually believe that it's a meritocracy based off what Peter says since he's been in the room with these yeah. people. That mm -hmm. tells me everything I need to know about how they're actually really not that thoughtful of people. Because, it, and this is from the Oxfam report, this one was all the way back in 2019, so it's even worse since then. It's gotten way worse, actually. Yeah. But even back in 2019, the world's 26 richest people owned as much as the poorest 50% of the planet. So that's 26 people with more than, what was it at the time, 3.5 billion or something like that people? And the idea that, like, pfft, they're just mega geniuses and they just worked harder. They just deserve all that. Nobody <laughs> earns that much more. Nobody does. So that's not a thing. The meritocracy is not a thing. In fact, in many ways, we have more of like an anti-meritocracy than a meritocracy because of how much of the wealth is inherited and goes from generation mm, to generation. Very true. Yeah. Or it goes to these people whose only skill is like financial market engineering, which is what most of the new billionaires, I mean, people think about Musk, they, people think about Bezos, who actually like do make things and invented things. Most of the new billionaires, all they invented was like, some new financial prod product or way to rig the market. If you can't acknowledge that it's not a meritocracy and that you're not just a mega genius who's inherently better than other people, then I really just think that it shows how unthoughtful they are and how really what they do is rationalize a hierarchy after the fact. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I'm at the top of this thing, so it must be, like, correct and good and moral and just. The other thing I came to realize in reading the book is, you know, the response to the pandemic era programs, I think, was complicated for the left because on the one hand, the direct checks, the, the super dole, unemployment, plus up, these things really did genuinely help people. Um, it was paired with. But yeah. when you compare that with what business got, I mean, it's 
it's not even close. And they're like begrudging you for it now. They're like, now it's, you got $600 in your account. So now we have inflation. Way to go, guys. And so it, I came to realize reading the book, they did just enough for individual regular Americans to allow them to do this mass largesse for corporate America and for people to more or less stay quiet about it. The other thing that, you know, I already knew, but he puts a really fine point in the book too, is that a lot of these companies, what they did with their tax cut is rather than investing it in productive capacity or God forbid, give their workers a raise or anything like that, they did stock buybacks. Right. So when it came time, even though they had just been the beneficiaries of this massive government giveaway under Trump, when the pandemic hit, they did not have the extra cash reserves because they had squandered it in, you know, giving out goodies to themselves and to their shareholders. The airlines in one of the pandemic relief packages got billions of dollars to rescue them. Then they turned around and laid people off anyway. So this is why I was against the CARES Act. I was against the Wall Street bailout when we had the Wall Street bailout. Because, yes, what they do is in these moments of crisis, they act like, well, we have to do something we got to do right now. And then they slap things together. And like you said, they'll put just enough of a sweetener in there for working class people where if you vote against the bill, they turn around and say, you voted against the extended unemployment. But, you know, right. but no, like well, and people genuinely needed that. help. People genuinely needed that hostage. help. But you know what? Decouple it from your endless corporate bailouts. I mean, that is. That's the problem is that and again, that's evidence of just how much the government is in cahoots with yeah. business well, and the billionaires and the donor class. And, and that's that, why they structure the packages that way. That's right. And that's why I knew at that time when that package was being put together in a rush. And you'll recall at that moment, the stock market fell off a cliff and it was kind of in free fall. And that was when there was a lot of pressure from the business world of like, you guys got to do something. And I knew this would be the one, whatever you get in this package is basically what you're going to get for working people. So it better be good. This is your only point of leverage. Because once you, uh, as David Dayan says, shoot the money cannon at Wall Street and prop them up, they're not going to want to go along with any other stimulus and for regular people. And that is precisely what ended up happening. I mean, the bulk of what was done was in that very first package. And they did put just enough in. So that people would say could hold, you know, hold pacify people. The only person who voted against it was that one extreme libertarian guy whose name I'm blanking on right now, Congressman. Oh, uh, um, Thomas Massey. Thomas Massey. That's right. He's the only one who voted against it. I remember Bernie giving a speech where he was like very, you know, kind of reluctant to support it. But he still supported it ultimately in the end. And, you know, that was it. That that laid down the track of what the pandemic response was ultimately going to be. And again, it could have been worse for working class people. The programs they put in place, especially like the direct checks and the unemployment, they did help. But when you could put it up against the massive response for business and the way that inequality has now just skyrocketed again because of that response. And you pair that, scrums. you pair what Congress did with what the Fed, the Fed did, did, which is totally separate. Yeah. Where they say, Look, we don't have the tools or the ability to help working class people. All we have is to backstop the market. And so now we started buying corporate debt. So it's like socialize the profits or, or privatize the profits, socialize the losses. Always. That's the way the game's played. It's really stupid. Anyway, everybody go buy the book. Davos Man, or as I like to call I it, it, Davos Man. Don't care who disagrees. It's now Davos because I've declared it so. Um, love you guys. Everybody, uh, 
go ahead and subscribe on Substack. If you pay $5 a month, you get the video of the show and you get it a day early as well as the wonderful newsletters from Piper. Uh, so everybody do that. Thank you to everybody who already is a subscriber on Substack. And then if you don't want to do that, you guys can still go to Substack and sign up for free so that you get the audio version the second it drops. It'll come right to your email box. And yeah, we love you guys. Do those things. Love you guys. See you next week.